I'm here today with an interview with Stephen Post. Stephen's the author of a book titled Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. So I, I found this title of this book when I ran across it really of interest in terms of the world that we live in today, and uh, I had reached out, and uh, Stephen's kind enough to take some time out of his schedule to chat. So, Stephen, thanks for connecting and uh, taking the time to talk today. Sure, Jim. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Well, I've been a teacher in medical schools, University of Chicago, Ann Arbor, Case Western Med for 20 years, and now Stony Brook Med outside of New York for 11 years. And I uh, teach, among many things, preventive medicine. And giving, uh, helping others, is oftentimes uh, recommended as part of a strategy to keep people happy, uh, healthy, and uh, flourishing and resilient as well. Hmm. So I've done a lot of research in these areas. And uh, also I work with the UN uh, Conscious Capital Project, which is a big deal, planning a summit in a year or so uh, on uh, responsible investing. Uh, so there's a lot going on. Uh, I'm not myself an investor, but I worked for many years with uh, a great Philadelphian, uh, John Templeton. Nice. Templeton Funds. And, and he was a great model of personal values informing philosophy of investment. Awesome. So what's what's the basis of, like, what's the essence of the research that can, that connects a person's act of giving to actual better health outcomes? Oh, there's so much of it now, uh, and it's been ongoing for about 15 or even 20 years. Uh, but it, uh, just to give you an example, uh, when I got to Stony Brook, it was 2008, and in 2010, we did a national survey, uh, a random survey of uh, American adults we asked them, did you volunteer in 2009? This was a year after the downturn. 41% of them had volunteered. How much? They weren't overdoing it. It was 100 hours a year on average. That comes down to about two hours a week if you want to break it up. And then we asked them, did this make you feel physically healthier? Well, 68% reported that it did. It made them feel more robust, more energetic, kind of like you uh, quit the protein and uh, you, you quit the carbs and the sugar and, you, and, and, and you're doing a lot of protein and you feel stronger. 90% uh, uh, said it made them feel happier. About 80% said it made them uh, able to deal with losses and disappointments uh, easier. Mm. Uh, many, uh, many said that... Uh, it created deeper friendships, helped them sleep. Uh, it's a long list of benefits, but uh, overall, uh, it provides a certain kind of protection uh, against a lot of uh, difficulty in life. If you can get your mind off the self and the problems of the self, and just contribute to the lives of others. That, uh, that I think, is a great observation. I actually... Um related to this. I, I know a number of people have PTSD due to childhood abuse and 
one of the best ways that I've seen over the past like 10 years in terms of a person's healing is that feeling of being able to do something good for somebody else. I mean, it literally has a, an effect on their whole quality of life because, like you said, you're not stuck in kind of the, uh, the isolation of the self. In the work that you've done, is there any finding that it's kind of um, age-appropriate or age-dependent? Like, does it vary based on a person's generation or age? Well, actually, that's a really great question, Jim. So, um, you know, there have been a lot of studies on high schoolers, uh, on service-based learning, hmm. but also just on uh, high school kids. Uh, one, one study came out of Vancouver. And so it turned out, uh, if you look at the subjects who were simply volunteering for one hour a week, again, a relatively small amount of time, compared to the controls who weren't volunteering at all, uh, the, uh, the subjects, the volunteers, had lower uh, levels of uh, uh, fatty acids uh, in their uh, vasculature uh, and other signs that are good markers of uh, coronary uh, disease, which is becoming more of a problem in younger people these days. Hmm. So for the young, and also if you go into a lot of very good uh, high-level adolescent psychiatry uh, programs in children's hospitals, uh, they're now recommending volunteering for these kids who you know, maybe they're struggling with affluenza, uh, they're uh, kind of down in the dumps, they may be depressed and anxious just uh, get them uh, helping others uh, in an area that they find exhilarating and give them the sense that they're making a difference. And it very much reduces depression rates, dramatically reduces depression rates. Hmm. And that's key. I mean, there's a, I know there's a number of studies recently where the issue of um, teenage suicide and teenage depression are are huge, have, have really kind of grown immensely over the past number of years. Yeah, 
problem. Um, and of course, uh, you know, at the, I'm here at Stony Brook University Hospital Medical Center, and this is the opioid capital of New York State. Wow. Uh, and just like Hamilton County is in Ohio. And I got to tell you that, um, you know, it's really tragic. I can go up to the intensive care unit uh, on any given day and I'll find one adolescent male typically who's in uh, a uh, persistent vegetative state, uh, another one who might be brain dead, another one who might possibly be recovering with some Narcan. But this is a big problem. And what's the cause of it? What is the cause of it? The cause of it, the, the, the single most significant protection against adolescent addiction is a high sense of purpose in life. But to have a high sense of purpose, they need a community. Yeah. They need family support. Yeah. They need role models. They need the right connections. And, yeah. and, 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 and so we need to work really hard because uh, they're running on empty, and it's killing them. Yeah. Why, I, I, again, I know a number of people who work with kids who have special needs, and one of the things that, um, just in casual observation that I've found, is that, by and large, the problem isn't with the kids, it's actually with the parents, and the parents' treatment or lack of attention to guiding the kids and the kids needing more in terms of actual affection and connection to uh, to a real family. And, and like a lot of the times, the parents just aren't there to give it. That's right. So the strongest it's tragic of an adolescent becoming opioid addicted is what they call ACEs, or yeah. Adverse Childhood Experiences. Yeah. And not only uh, does that predict uh, issues in adolescence, but it's a very strong predictor of uh, depression and other psychological problems uh, in midlife, yep. as well as uh, physical problems. And these are based on the Harvard study of yep. adult human development. I mean, much more susceptible to uh, diabetes, yep. asthma, well, a hundred different things. Yeah. So whether you can... Uh, look back on your life and feel that there was some tender loving care when you were a, a young child makes a big difference. Yeah, because it, it also ends up leading to kind of self-destructive habits too, whether it's eating or smoking or drinking, um, drug addiction, like you said. Uh, I mean, these things play out for and really have you know, huge impacts in terms of a person's not just quality of life, but their financial security. I mean, they're just not a, able to weather kind of the stresses of a normal life anyway. And obviously, it's not like we're living in normal times now. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, it's an age of anxiety. And, yeah. And just astonished what's going on. But, you know, I will say that if you look at the literature, you know, Jerome Kagan, the Harvard child psychologist uh, uh, has written a lot about this over the years but so what goes on early on in life does give you a lot more likelihood of illness of winding up needing a lot of counseling psychological help over the course of a lifetime but it can also be overcome for example if you have the right non-parent mentors mm. in your communities and you're part of the right sorts of organizations uh, you can in fact 
uh, rectify some of these problems. If you're in the right, say, maybe it's a faith community of some kind, a spiritual community, whatever, uh, maybe uh, you marry a person who is very empathic and can connect with you yeah. and, and help mend and heal these wounds. So it's not as though it's set in stone, but the probabilities of having problems and being on a kind of a, of a healing, uh, steeper healing curve are much greater. Yeah, I mean, part of society's role is really to create those those um, structures to create the opportunity for people to be able to come in and act in those ways. Yeah, and find meaning. And, and, yeah. and, and so now the sociologists uh, talk about uh, edge work. It's a really interesting concept. Uh, basically, you know, a lot of young people cannot find any meaning mm. in the world we've given them. I mean, it's, maybe it's just grossly materialistic. Maybe they're getting all the wrong messages about consumerism. Maybe they're locked on the screens 24-7. But they're not getting the kind of flourishing and nurturing and community-based activity that they need. So in America, we're, we're like way down in the 30s on the International Happiness Survey each year. Mm. But places like Mozambique are in the top three or four because they have uh, natural roles within communities, uh, they, they, they have a place to fit in. Our kids are so lost oftentimes, and we don't have any traditions that kind of guide them a little bit. Yeah. So they're sort of inventing their lives from nothing from age 11 or 12, and that's a huge stressor. So there's a lot going on with kids, and, and it's, it's, it's tough. Wow. So when you look at... Um when you look at, uh, you had mentioned responsible investment, like how does responsible investment play into kind of this sense of being happier and and kind of living a, a happier, higher quality life? Well, one thing, I, you know, I know a lot of uh, uh, investment uh, programs that involve families, not just in investing money, but investing their time and energy in meaningful projects. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great thing if that can happen, uh, if the young people uh, can be involved with the adults, with the parents in volunteer activity. Uh, it works charms. In fact, there's a great book, Raising Kind Kids by Tom Lincona. And he says that, you know, that's a real secret. So you want to role model for your kids and you want to involve them. You don't want to just think of investing as, you know, the right stock, but you want to think about investing in a broader term uh, sense of giving, of uh, more dimensional wealth, of well-being, of flourishing, of, uh, of positivity and purpose. And so if you can do that, uh, it's a tremendous benefit. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, as a uh, financial advisor, I mean, you see most of the industry is really driven towards quarterly returns and, you know, whether or not a company is more profitable than it was last quarter, it it really is kind of like chasing a, uh, chasing a bone. And a lot of long-term consideration isn't really given to what is the products of that particular company actually doing to society? I mean, there's really 
there's almost no consideration, especially when you look at like some of the, you know, uh, tobacco, some of the poor quality food that's generated uh, that has health effects, um, just unsafe industries, uh, let alone fossil fuels, which are basically poisoning the planet. Um, there's just not much consideration for long-term decision-making in terms of corporate structures. Yeah, I think that's really true. And, uh, um, I mean, there, there are some uh, exceptional uh, uh, venues. Uh, uh, and, you know, just FYI, you know, the, the United Nations, not that I endorse everything the UN stands for, but, but they did have a great uh, project on conscious capital, and there were many leaders in uh, investment joined together uh, for a symposium, and there's going to be a big summit in a year or so, hopefully with even 500 people. Mm. But it's really to, 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 to create conscious capital. Uh, how, do you, how do you invest in ways that are meaningful and consistent with uh, a sustainable ecology and a sustainable future? I think we're going to have to move in that uh, direction, uh, but it's a huge revolution, and how we get there anybody's guess. I do think it's it's much better when you're investing in things that are uh, constructive rather than destructive uh, because you can have a certain kind of integration or integrity between what you're doing with your money and what your core values are. And that's actually very healthy. No, I completely agree. One of my uh, experiences when I first started doing uh, what I do in terms of socially responsible investing was, um, you know, there were a lot of people who were uh, basically starting out in the solar industry when I first started. And I thought, here's a group of people who would kind of understand what I was doing. And, you know, almost to a person, those people... Um, kind of poo-pooed what I was doing in terms of, you know, matching up a person's investments with their values, and basically they're like, oh, I'll just leave my money at Vanguard. I'm like, well, you understand that, that by doing that, you're basically investing in the companies that are fighting you and what you're doing with your solar business, right? And it really didn't matter to people. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was as I kind of reframed the conversation and talked to more people, talked to regular people um, about doing it as a way to manage risk, and a lot more people understood that and actually embraced it. And I actually found that very, very uh, encouraging. So I think... Yep. And when when you have to bifurcate or split yourself in half, so you may have these uh, ideals and hopes for humanity, for a shared humanity, for a shared planet Earth, and for uh, a future that is befitting of our children and great grandchildren and so forth. The bottom line is that if you're investing in ways that contradict those values and aspirations, it does great. It does wear on you. It's not ultimately a healthy and sustainable way of living if you can at all possibly do reasonably 
perfectly well. And in fact, there's lots of studies, as you know, indicating that if you if you do value investing, you generally do quite nicely, and you're more committed to the things you're investing in. So you're a little more patient with your investments mm-hmm. and so forth. You know, if you just go, if you're just doing this like a say a quant investor, you know. Uh, there's there's no meaning to it, and, yeah. and it can oftentimes be contradictory to what's really at your core. Yeah, no, there's there's actually a number of studies that have shown that um, responsible investing actually does outperform um, unscreened approaches, and that's been my experience as well with the work that I've been able to do. So it really does make a difference in terms of where you proactively put your money, but by the same token, what you avoid. I think it's key to avoid specific things to, again, kind of uh, withdraw support from those areas. And, uh, you know, no greater example of that than really kind of the divestment movement from fossil fuels. Um, You know, the move away from fossil fuels has really limited their ability to finance um, their operations. And, um, is a positive if we're going to get ourselves out of this carbon-burning economy. Yeah, so integration is, is the core of life. You know, I, I, believe it or not, when I was growing up as a kid, uh, down the block, uh, uh, John Jotty Jr. lived hmm. <laughs> with his family. And, you know, he would, I would observe him sometimes. He was a great dad. He took care of his kids. He took care of his family. He had a boat out in the backyard, uh, you know, at the dock. And it was a beautiful boat. He loved fishing with, with everybody. And he was, an, he was an okay, nice guy to talk with. But, you know, when he was in the city, uh, whatever he was doing, it, it was disruptive. And I always thought, you know, that bifurcation, that split between how he spends his workday and how he wants to behave at home, that's got to be destructive, and it, it is destructive. The more, the more you know, Aristotle said to be philosophical that a good friend, a true friend, is someone who makes sure that you're acting in a way that's consistent with your essential values and your essential meanings. Hmm. You always want to have someone like that on your board of trustees if you're running a nonprofit or a for-profit, because they're going to kind of help you to see where you're veering off course. And ultimately, that's what true friendship is about. And that's why when people volunteer, they report that they form deeper friendships because their friends aren't just the people they hang out with, that they party with and so forth, but their friends are the people who they debrief, they find meaning in their helpful activities. Those are the true friends. Those are the friends you want to have around. No doubt. No doubt. One of the, um, one of the developments really over the next... 20 to 30 years is going to be this this massive transfer of wealth to the younger generation from the boomers. And I would imagine that that's going to have a huge impact on foundations. Have you looked at kind of that aspect of giving and what that means in terms of that, that kind of a generational transfer of wealth? Well, boy, you know, the intergenerational are so complicated. Uh, now, you know, I'm pretty much, uh, I'm in New York now, but I'm on loan from Cleveland. I spent 20 years in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And, uh, you know, I knew a lot of people who 
um, were pretty well to do, um, in, you know, ranging from Peter Lewis to Long Progressive to just, well, many, many people. And, the, you know, the thing is, you know, the old Cleveland philanthropy, and there's a lot of that old philanthropy in greater Philadelphia, um, you know, it, you know when, when you get the, 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 the kids who still have some loyalty and commitment to the, to the region and to the people of the region who help them build their fortunes, you know, there's still philanthropic activity. But when you get to that third generation, it just drops off. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's a, a very serious uh, consideration. Now, some of them may, may have philanthropic interests that go way beyond anything regional and that can be very positive. But for the most part, um, when people get um, uh, a generation or two or three away from their origins in location A, B, or C, um, don't expect there to be much uh, philanthropic commitment. Hmm. How do you uh, how do you change that other than just getting them directly involved in the philanthropy early on? Well, that's why that's why that's so important. Uh, you know, uh, getting getting the younger generations involved uh, early on is absolutely key. Uh, and any uh, uh, investment firm that's working with families of wealth needs to really think about the family as a whole and its flourishing and how the torch can be passed, uh, you know, from one generation to the next. I mean, that's always the challenge in life, because these values, they're not taught, you know, in the sense of, you know, you get up in front of a whiteboard, you throw some ideas down on a, uh, with, with a pencil. No, it's, it's not like that. It's really role modeling is key. It's creating a culture, a family culture. Mm. Uh, it can be done. Uh, uh, and, and it can be successful, but it takes a very significant um, effort. And what a lot of people say is that you need, if, if you are a family of wealth, you need to have a family values statement and tack it right up on your refrigerator. In other words, all the studies show that, that if you, if, as a family, even with the kids being five, six, seven years old, if you can just have that list of core things, uh, uh, we help others. Uh, we are honest. Um, we uh, we forgive. Uh, we volunteer. Uh, we follow the golden rule. Just those four or five things, for example. And you can modify them. You can edit them as people wish to because everybody in the family kind of owns that. But that becomes your cultural center. And you have to have that kind of cultural center. We are generous with our resources. Um, whatever those values might be, they have to be explicit, they've got to be written down, and uh, you have to convene the family around those value statements, you know, every couple of weeks and just sort of have a debrief and, you know, how are we, how are we doing with these things? Um, and and I, I think, it, you, know, I, you, you know, some people can say uh, we exercise compassion, <clears throat> but that's the way to go. Uh, and then the role modeling is important for the parents. And then, you know, no no kids will follow their parents' lead if their parents are not empathic and kind. You know, uh, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I like to say uh, um, it's better to be always kind than always right. And uh, by the way, there's a recent book uh, about parents screaming at 
parents are perfect. 98% of American parents at some point or another scream bloody murder at their young kids. Yeah. Um, and we, we should have what it's, it's, you know, basically scream-free parenting is the name of the book if anybody wants to look at it. Mm. But we need to get a hold of ourselves realizing, realize that sometimes we, we send the wrong, the wrong messages and we need to send the right messages. Yeah, I mean, that really takes a sense of self-awareness that I think needs to be further developed among among parents. The question is, how do you how do you do that in the kind of time compressed lives that we end up living? It's uh, it's a challenge to keep up. It is a challenge to keep up. Everybody's running from point A to point B. Um, you know, I call it the New York strut. I, you know, I mean, it's pretty insane. Yeah. But uh, and I'm kind of a part of it because I'm in a busy medical center and I'm running all the time. But the bottom line is, uh, uh, we really have to just take uh, enough time for mindfulness. We have to balance our lives. We have to really think carefully about what success is. I mean, I worry about this with our medical students. You know, I mean, it, it's that job at a slightly more prestigious hospital for a slightly uh, higher wage. Uh, uh, and so forth, and, and what happens there is people people forget about um, their home, their relationships, um, you know, their their connectivities that are important to life. So you really want to be careful what what really is successful. Uh, you know, we have a lot of doctors all over the United States who are burned out and struggling, and they have relatively high suicide rates per capita vis-a-vis the rest of the population. And, you know, the, the, the problem is that, that, you know, people get to be 40, 50 years old and they realize, you know, I didn't, I, I, and they were being altruistic. I, was, I spent so much time taking care of patients, which is a good thing, that I, I ignored my, uh, my kids and now they hate me and I can't get that back. Yeah. I, you know, I can't go back and relive my life. And I may be making a little more money than I would have if I had stayed in the old neighborhood where we have a lot of support friends and so forth, but, you know, I moved everybody to Timbuktu because I was going to make uh, 50000 bucks more a year, and I was going to be my department chair and so forth, but, you know, in the end, uh, you know, success uh, is, is a lot more than money and prestige, and, and uh, we, have to, we have to rethink it. I think this is a, so I went to a high school in New Hampshire, a place called St. Paul's, and when I was a kid there, it was a boys' school. You know, there was a little infirmary. It was like two beds in a, in a room. And, and maybe once a week, a doctor would come in from Concord Hospital if people needed antibiotics or some such thing. You know, it was an easy deal. Now there's a whole dorm that's been converted to basically a clinic. And there are three or four full-time psychiatric nurses. But this is happening at all of these schools up around New mm. England and even throughout Pennsylvania. I mean, it, it, in, in the universities and the colleges, because the, you know, I, I think in the high schools we're putting much too much emphasis on, okay, can you get into a super yeah. duper high prestige university or college? Actually, most people are not going to do that. Some are, but the bottom line is that you know what's important is that people go to a half decent place where they find something that floats their boat and they do well at it and they go on in life and have a meaningful career. Well, and the other the other aspect of that too is you find so many school districts 
getting rid of art programs, of music, of kind of creative outlets, which really are the avenues that allow kids to figure out who they are and who they want to be. And because that, you know, obviously that doesn't get counted into the test scores, which actually isn't true either. But, you know, the fact is, by denying that creative outlet, we're we're uh, snipping their futures in the uh, at the bud. Yeah, I couldn't agree uh, more. And we are putting them under so much uh, stress that their anxiety levels are going through yeah. the ceiling, and it's really sad. And by the way, a lot of people do get into you know these sort of very high prestige places, and they can do pretty well. But you know. Uh, a fair percentage of them, uh, I won't give numbers, but a fair percentage of them sort of once they get in, they cross that threshold, then uh, they kind of feel like they've made it in life and they may not go on and do much more that is meaningful. Whereas, you, you know, you can have somebody who goes to say, you know, uh, a nice place like Temple or Drexel or whatever, you know, and um, um, and they'll go on and they'll, they'll do magnificent things and, and, and have fabulous, generous lives. So, you know, Philadelphia Academy of the Arts. I mean, that's a good place. But uh, the point is, it's not so much, you know, where you are and putting so much pressure on young kids to get into A, B, or C, or to get a certain grade on their, uh, um, their uh, SATs. Uh, I mean, they want to do okay. But honestly, if they go to go to a decent place and they find the right opportunities, the right mentors mm-hmm. and they love what they're doing they will find their destiny yeah yep, no doubt you had mentioned a couple of times the uh, the word mindfulness, how would you define my mindfulness? because I think that's key yeah, you know, mindfulness I mean, our, I'll tell you, our minds are so fragmented today uh, it's actually almost painful for me, you know, because I get about 200 to 300 emails a day, and very few of them are throwaway, because I'm in a clinical environment, and the stuff I do is important, and I have to be mindful. So what I, what I get so fragmented, because I'm constantly responding to these um, uh, uh, emails with little bits of information, and I would feel much more relaxed if I went up to, well, you're in Pennsylvania, if I went up and escaped to the Poconos, okay, mm-hmm. and just 24-7 uh, worked mindfully or in a focused way on a single article, I would feel more relaxed at the end of the week than I would after, uh, uh, you know, a week here in the job. And, and mindfulness partly is, you know, being mindful and attentive to the moment, really in the moment, sort of wholly in the moment, not just distracted all the time, not divided, uh, you know, being uh, being centered internally, uh, centered on one's soul, if you will, or one's inner light, to be a Quaker about it, because you've got so many Quakers out there on the main line, uh, historically anyway. But, mm-hmm. You know, just that mindfulness to me is breathing deep. I mean, uh, you know, we tell the doctors here to, before they go into a new patient's room, okay, stop pause, breathe, even take 30 seconds or a minute, do a kind of yoga breath, just with your your team, just breathe a little bit, and then knock, you know, and and poke your head in the 
door, make sure the patient has uh, some garment covering them or a sheet or whatever, ask them, is it okay if we come in? And then mindfully ask them a meaningful question like, is there anything we call them by name? Is there anything we can do to make you stay more comfortable here uh, today? And, 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 and then, you know, focus on them mindfully as patients because, you know, if you get rid of all the, some you know, people talk about the eye patient now, Brigazi uh, at UCSF, you know, the pay, you have these readouts, you know, and you have the iPods and the iPads and everything, yeah. but you completely are unmindful of that individual in front of you. And so we need to be mindful about the people around us. You know, I'd say this generally we're, 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 we're just passing each other in the night and we're not connecting, we're not connecting with ourselves, we're not connecting with one another and the result is a lot of unhappiness where people are not happy. No, I completely, uh, completely agree. I think that's great advice. Just take a breath, clear the mind and don't be distracted, don't let yourself get distracted and just kind of knock things out one at a time in terms of with what you're, what's in front of you and what you need to uh, honestly care about. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really true. And, and of course, you know, the popularity of spirituality and meditation uh, is, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious in most parts of the country. It's a good, it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, absolutely. One of, um, you know, one of the groups that I've I've met a lot is people who are older in their 60s or 70s, and they honestly don't have much saved for retirement, and you know they're obviously stressed about it. How do you? What advice do you have for somebody in that kind of a situation? in terms of living a happier, healthier life when obviously the, the financial stress is is pretty daunting. It is pretty daunting. And, you know, um, bottom line is most people are in that boat. I mean, there are some people who are future-minded and early on in life. You know, they invested in you know, whole life insurance programs and they get some money out of it. have a job with a decent income, 
Amen. It's hard to help them out. It's, 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 it's very tough. But hopefully they'll, they, well, they're getting, they're getting out of these expensive states, uh, uh, you know, like crazy. I mean, they're, they're all leaving California. They're leaving New York. They're going to places like Florida where they don't have to pay taxes. Ohio's doing pretty well. I think Pennsylvania. I think Delaware's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, where you retire makes a big difference. But, of course, you know, they're, they're, sometimes overly attached to some particular region because of family relationships. That's where they've lived their lives. But, boy, you've got to, you, you know, life is a journey. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, when you, when you get older and if you're struggling in these ways, you just got to go where you can make ends meet and live a relatively peaceful life. And, you know, with all the technology today and the screen time that we can interact uh, and interface on, uh, you know, I think you have to no doubt. Um, what was there a particular? I, I, like, I, like, I like Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, by the way. Oh yeah. Well, we're actually um, we actually were uh, fans of Ramdas. We've been out to see Ramdas a number of times on Maui, so uh, we plan on moving there in the next couple of months. So um, I don't think that's too shabby. But what? Um, was there a particular um, experience that motivated you to write the book, the, the Why Good Things Happen to Good People? Well, um, yeah, I mean, since I was a kid, I mean, I think my parents, I, I lived on a, on a pretty empty street uh, on Long Island when I was a boy, and there were not other kids. So um, my mother used to say, well, why don't you go out and help somebody? And there was a neighbor down the road, Mr. Muller, out there with my wagon and I would bring these shovels low and burn verses from poems and scripture and um, uh, uh, spruce panels and varnish them and nail them up to the trees in the wooden area. So, you know, I think uh, I got the idea that, well, help others, you're always helping yourself too because um, you find me. That are that are joyful. You know, it's hard to be joyful if you're on your own. Yeah. No, no doubt. If uh, somebody wants to uh, connect to you and learn more about the work that you do, or kind of talk about the book, how could they reach out to you? Well, yeah. Um, well, my my uh, best website is po- is uh, www at uh, post post there's an email there post at stephengpost.com but that's the thing to do just just google me go to my website and I, I try to respond to people awesome and uh, the book uh, why good things happen to good people is that uh, on uh, Amazon is it on your yeah, website it's on, Amazon. it's on Amazon best way to do it you know it's a, it's a random house Broadway books thing it just, you know it's been out for a little while but it did really well and people still enjoy it and awesome it, message doesn't change no no more relevant today uh steven thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today i enjoyed it and uh hope you did too and we'll have to uh connect again in the future thanks jim
It's a pleasure. I wish you well and take care of yourself. Sounds great. Okay, bye-bye.